Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, another edition of the Remnant Podcast. Um, I'm doing this from the palatial, almost Versailles-like offices of National Review in New York City. And uh, I'm in the midst of, uh, they don't really do book tours per se anymore. It's like a media tour. And I'm, I'm, I, I, I apologize in advance. I am, I am mentally extremely frazzled and... Um, uh, I find this stuff more stressful than I used to, um, but I should also not be complaining because things are going well. Uh, we went as high as six on Amazon's bestseller list, which meant that it was great. I was taught. Well, first of all, I will, since I don't have Jack here today, instead I have Michael Brendan Doherty, uh, my colleague from National Review. Hi, Michael. Hello, Jenna. People call him MBD. Um, what do they call you on the editors? Notorious MBD? Is that it? Yeah, that's yeah. what yeah. Rich says. Um, and uh, um, so yesterday, so tales from the tour before we get into these weighty issues, um, I did CNN. I'm friends with Jake, Jake Tapper, and he was great to have me on his show. But, you know, um, part of the problems with doing these shows on, on this is, like, I'm not getting a lot of love from Fox for various and sundry reasons. Part of it is they kind of have a policy. They don't like people using the – network just to hawk their books, right? So you have to sort of tie it to news of the day. So, you know, Martha McCallum, whom I'm a big fan of, they gave me the – we gave them the exclusive first interview for the book, right, on Monday night or Tuesday night, whatever, some night this week. And um, and I had three minutes to tie the themes of Suicide of the West to Kanye's tweets in support <laughs> of this girl from some turning point group or whatever. And um, – and then I had to go on Kennedy and tie the weighty themes of Suicide of the West to uh, uh, the DNC's lawsuit uh, <laughs> about the 2016 election. And then yesterday I do uh, CNN and I had to do it, you know, try to get it into um, – at least Jake really tried to play along. And he was like, in your book you talk about tribalism. Does that explain some of this Ronnie Jackson stuff? And I was like, eh, yeah, sure. You know, we can do that. But the best part was Jake Tapper, who's a great guy, and he's got this apparently fantastic novel. I just started it, but you know, I have friends who've read it and say it's great. Jake Tapper, um, his novel came out the same day. Sorry, folks, that's my agent. I'll take that later. And um, uh, his novel came out the same day as mine, as did Ronan Farrow's and Amy Chozik, uh, who has the book about Hillary Clinton. And anyway, so – but. Jake, because he's a cool mainstream media celebrity, right? He got to be on Ellen. Mm. And so he was all excited about being on Ellen. And then uh, I was like, hey, man, congrats. That's got to move books. That's huge, you know. And we're doing this all over the earpieces or whatever. And he says, yeah, move me from 96 or whatever to to 81 and on Amazon. I was like, oh, that's great. That's great. And he goes, how you doing? And I was like, uh. I just hit six. <laughs> and he's like, six, what? You know, so it was a, it was a nice moment for me. I, you know, sort of like, a, a, you know, it was a good moment. But um, so yeah, I'd just been grueling and I fought traffic to get here from BBC's offices way, way downtown. And now uh, I've been wanting to have Michael on for a very long time. One of the rules we have, it's not absolute rule, but it is a sort of rule of thumb. We try to do these podcast conversations in person because the body language works as um, as Eric Erickson in a 
second piece about why my podcast doesn't suck, basically, um, says that it's important for conversation to read body language, to know when to interrupt people. Poor Michael's just sitting here chomping at the bit to interrupt me, but he won't do it because he's a gracious guest. And so uh, we figured we'd have him on and didn't really plan on it working out this way. But Michael was very smart to write a piece about my book <laughs> in advance of this so that we would have something to talk about so we can talk about um, all of that. So first of all, Michael, tell people a little bit about who you are. I am a senior contributor to National Review Online. Uh, is that your title? Is that what I it is? think so, yes. I didn't know that was a thing. Okay. And um, previously, I was at theweek.com uh, and in various shades in the past at Business Insider and the American Conservative, where I right. got my start about a decade ago. In part because of a path-breaking essay you wrote for a little book called Proud to be Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I wrote that. Uh, I think I was at Tech at the time when uh, – when you and um, Adam and Bello. Adam Bello approached me, uh, and yeah, and uh, I contributed to that. And I was thinking about that as I was coming into uh, into this uh, arena today, uh, wondering how much I've moved from that or changed from that, or if I'm still pretty much where I was there. Yeah. So, uh, Michael, there are a handful of us here at NR that um, were sort of the Conservative intellectual history equivalent of Dungeons and Dragons de- geeks, right? You know, like so, like John Miller, who's technically not here anymore, but he's still one of the family. You know, he he's like a level nineteen Kirkian, right? Yeah, um, he's read everything that Russell Kirk has written. He's been to his home in Macosta, um, and um, I think if you say Russell Kirk's name three times in a row, he just appears. Um, you. So I don't want to label you. Sure. No. So you can do it, and then I'll modify it. Okay. Well, but but you're you're of a more paleo tradition. Yeah. Um, that's fine. And uh, um, you're also, which we're not going to get into, because um, I am completely ill-equipped to discuss it. Um, a somewhat fierce Irish nationalist of some. some I mean, as f- yeah. I mean, I, I yeah. I would say I. We would favor the IRA disarming. <laughs> <laughs> which IRA? Which year? Um, definitely not the one from 1919. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I was raised in in a kind of household that was injected with some Irish nationalist, uh-huh. uh, you know, of the diaspora flavor uh, themes, and that's I think carried through in my intellect all the way here, even when I didn't know it. Did you ever get into Tete-a-tetes with with Charlie about that stuff. I have no idea what Charlie comes down to. I just know he's my brother. I mean, we we they t- hated English, right? We so. t- we talk about it. I mean, um, yeah, we definitely have talked about it. We've talked about sort of issues with Northern Ireland uh-huh. and and kind of the mysterious community of six counties that is, um, which is weirdly divided. I mean, we're actually right now twenty years from the Good Friday Agreement, uh-huh. um, kind of celebrating that anniversary now. Um, so yeah, we we talk about it. I don't, you know, we we kind of jokingly butt heads about uh-huh. issues that are not live. Sometimes on the National Review call, we'll have debates about issues from 1915 that people don't understand on the call. But. Yeah, I, I'm one of them. I just it's just it's not my my fight. I like Irish people. Uh, I will say, just as a matter of full disclosure, I was just telling somebody about this because I'm doing all this talk about tribalism, this and tribalism, that, and um, I was talking to. 
the publicist from my publisher about this is like my dad could never completely get over his anti-Irish stuff because the Irish beat up the Jewish kids at DeWitt Clinton High School in the 1940s. <laughs> and um, so every now and then there'd be like a Irish character like in some Maureen O'Hara movie kind of thing. And my dad would just make a face. And, and, um, and it was funny. It was like I kind of like that kind of tribalism better because it's grounded to the soil and to earth and to a tradition and yeah. all that kind of stuff. And it's not this fake, you know, inauthentic stuff. And, you know, my dad used to say that the the Jewish kids got along fine with the Italian kids, but the Jewish kids would make fun of the Italian kids because they weren't going to college, and the Italian kids would make fun of the Jewish kids because they were going to college. And, <laughs> you know, it was like that early 19, like that 1940s, 1950s mindset where, like, you could see why someone from the middle class would want to make a choice about – you know, why would you want to – why do you want to go read more books and go to school? You can get – you know how much money you can make just getting a job, you know? Yeah. A different world kind of thing. You know? Yeah. I mean I grew up – my first years were in this town, Bloomfield, New Jersey, which sort of like – and I grew up in this little neighborhood called Halcyon Park, which at the time, it seemed to be based on some kind of ancient like – decree where an Irishman met an Italian and said, we're splitting this neighborhood. <laughs> and the the Irish got to be civil servants and cops, crooked as hell. And the Italians got to run illegal businesses out of their laundromats and, you know, uh, other businesses. And they were loved in the neighborhood for, yeah. you know, spreading favors around. And, um, and, you know, everyone would meet for church at the one Catholic church on Sunday that had the Irish and Italians in it. And we would keep out the Poles who went to the other church, other right, Catholic right. church. You've got to maintain standards. Uh, and um, and eventually I think most of that neighborhood now is black and Polish, which yeah. would, you know, make those ancestors probably miserable to know. But, yeah. um, but that's the way it passed. Yeah. I mean, it is one of the sadder things about like, – so I grew up in Manhattan, but there was still a vestige of – ethnic neighborhoods when I was growing up and, um, you know, Little Italy was already by the 70s beginning its transition into an Epcot center. Yeah. You know, you know, Italian land. <laughs> um, but, uh, um, but there were still like German restaurants on the way up our east side. Um, and obviously there was some neighbors that were more Jewish and less Jewish. And Chinatown still is a real ethnic neighborhood. But yeah. Most of that stuff has just sort of been homogenized out. And yeah, out. I mean, there's, I mean, there's some emergent stuff in Queens with like Koreans and yeah. Russians, yeah. and there's still an Irish kind of neighborhood out in the far reaches of Queens, but um, it's nothing like it was. Yeah, um, I mean, I even remember kind of you know specific areas of the Bronx that we would go to to meet you know Irish people and. You know, my you know my mother was learning the Irish language at the time, so you'd go to classes in the Bronx or something like that. Um, and yeah, that that kind of ethnic identity was was kind of part of the childhood, so, but for reasons that you know, my father was Irish, Irish right. like my my mother had fallen in love with an Irishman, so that's kind of what re sort of renewed it in my family line. Yeah, my grandparents would have been like. Irish Americans where the Irish hyphen was sort of fading. Sure, sure, sure. Uh, you know, like, yeah, they'd pick up Sinatra's album of Irish tunes or something like yeah, that. Yeah. But uh, that that was about as deep as, you know, I saw it in yeah. my life for them. Yeah, so I grew up with, I mean, again, I went to Road of Sholem Day School, but I, my, my, my 
relationship to ethnicity was always pretty attenuated. My mom was grew up a, an Episcopalian Southerner, um, but her dad was German American. Uh, like her, her mom's side, like goes back to the, the Revolutionary era. Has been here forever. Um, but there's a great needlepoint family tree that we have that ends in like 1890, and some lady scratched out the date of birth for like in seven <laughs> in like 1795 because she didn't want people to know how old she was or something like it was like bizarre. But um um, and so my father-in-law, my 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 mother's father was um uh, a big physicist. He was a German. He was a scientist. He actually went to, I think he was a roommate briefly with Oppenheimer at Harvard and was one of the inventors of the precursors to sonar and worked on the Manhattan Project and all that kind of stuff. And my dad's side, my dad and his two brothers were the first people to graduate from grade school or something in the family, never mind, you know, anything else. And my my grandmother, um, I think she saw Trotsky speak on the floor of her garment factory twice because um, those were the days when the, you know. Yeah. Anyway, I didn't mean to get in all of this kind of stuff. I'm just trying to get my brain. <laughs> <The> tribal, <laughs> I've converted Shona back to tribalism. Yes, yeah, you know, because I think it's interesting stuff. So, um, you know, I don't necessarily want to make this all a – we don't. We can do some rank punditry if you want, but um, I don't want to make this all about the book either necessarily. People no, no. who are interested in this stuff can tune out or not tune out. But so – because I – I don't think our disagreements are as pronounced as even your very polite, you know, s- stating of them is. So why don't yeah. you, why don't you lay out what you think? Uh, you know, I, I, I'm not fishing for compliments. I'm just what do you what do you think our disagreements are, um, or what do you what is what is your um, problem with my my thesis or my variant of conservatism? Um, I can take it. I don't th- I don't have so much of a problem with the thesis. I mean, I think there's a, you know, I might quibble with the, the way you define the miracle sure. a little bit, but, um, but generally uh, my view is that uh, liberalism is in some peril right now, um, that unlike some guys like Patrick Deneen, I, I'm not ready to throw it out. <laughs> right. Um, I still haven't read Patrick's book. What is his alternative? I, mean, I don't – he doesn't – you know, it's like one of these political books where it's like he lays out a great case against something. And right. then in the last chapter, it has the last chapter problem of yeah. what's punts, but you next. Punts, yeah. I mean he just sort of puts out there like about, um, you know, uh, you know, communitarianism at the ground level. Uh-huh. You know, just sort of like building from the bottom up again. But it's it's not like a – it's not like a mark, you know, Marxist level manifesto of right. of the future. Um, so anyway, I think it's imperiled. But I, what I think is, I I want liberalism to be in its place, right? I want mm-hmm. I want a generally liberal market. I want a general generally liberal relationships, and I, I partly want that because my view is that the people are liberal in the sense, like Western people have internalized. This idea of a society organized around rights mm-hmm. and they they gladly and kind of happily assert their rights when they feel they're in danger. So I don't I don't think there is like an alternative system right. in, you know in place. I just think that that system is shored up and made tolerable 
by a kind of pre-liberal inheritance and like all these variety of institutions, meeting in institutions, family, church, um, you know, some level of nationalism. You know, you talk about it as like a, you know, it's good in small doses. Mm-hmm. I might think like a strong, like a slightly stronger dose, right? Um, than you, but I I agree that it it has to be nationalism has to be judged by what it's aiming for and and the means it takes in hand to achieve achieve that goal. I th- I think of nationalism as like it's like a project based uh, um eruption in politics and you know sometimes that project is national independence from an empire sometimes it is something much more sinister like Lebensraum right. <laughs> where you're um you know executing Jews and Slavs uh to make room for your you know more of you and um and sometimes as i think it is now i think especially in europe it's been more of a, a reassertion of popular sovereignty against you know, uh, a transnational EU and also a kind of politics that says um, the ever freer movement of people, capital and goods is no longer uh, up for democratic uh, adjudication. Yeah, no, I think that that point's very well taken. I I largely agree with it. I do think that there is at the fringes, some of the nationalist stuff in Europe, I mean, particularly as you move out to Hungary, but even yeah. in England, some of the stuff on the fringes is kind of ugly. Yeah, but the 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 good part of it is good and and understandable about you know taking on the you know the the uprising of the Morlocks against the Eloy of the EU. <laughs> right, I, I have no problem with that, and I agree with that to a large extent. And you know, and there are aspects of that on the American on the American right that I have no quarrel with about, you know, the fight against the administrative state or, um, you know, the globalists, right? I, I've been writing against cosmopolitanism for a very long time. Yeah. I remember my take on – remember that unbelievable speech that Obama gave in Berlin the, on the campaign trail? I know the one you're yeah, talking yeah. about, yeah. And I, my line on that was it must have been better in the or, original Esperanto. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, – and it's it's funny, you know, like historians are going to, I think, going to do a really interesting line from that speech to to Trump's election because the, the theme was walls, right? I mean, Obama talked about walls being terrible. You know, it was this extended metaphor about the Berlin Wall coming down, and we need the walls between peoples need to come down. And he he, he talked about walls so much, it kind of reminded me of that scene in The Jerk where Steve Martin says. He hates cans. He's shooting at these cans. More cans. It's like every time he just brings up walls all the time. Um, but anyway, so I, look, I take your point. I think you're right. I mean this is this is part of my problem with David Brooks's review of my book, which I just – Yeah. I think he shortchanged you on – like – and there's the thing. Like your book does say like there's the, this Burkean platoons that have to be defended ultimately and, and that are the sites where our affection for – the liberal order actually takes place, right? Right. So, you know, my my spiel, and I, again, one of the reasons why I'm not recounting for listeners the entire spiel of my book is I've done that so many times on other podcasts in the last ten days that I figure if you listen to this, you probably heard some of those. But by all means, if you want the full spiel, the Russ Roberts podcast is great. The Michael Lewis one was good. Um, I did a blogging heads thing with um, Bob Wright. Um, so there are plenty of places – or you could read the excerpt 
um, that was in the magazine, or the most, really the vastly most important thing you could do is you could buy the book, and you know, and not just buy one. You know, you really should, you know, come equipped to give it out as stocking stuffers and gifts and whatnot. I'm not above filthy lucre, um, but um, you know, so Hayek has this line in in the Fatal Conceit, which I find. You know, this motive, this whole argument in the fatal conceit, which I find extremely persuasive and is sort of informs part of the theme of the book, um, that, you know, we evolved in little tribes, little platoons, right? That That's where our, our brains are formed. And that's natural. That's what we want to live in, right? And and so he says, he calls that the microcosm. And the microcosm is flexible. You can create the microcosm or microcosmos, whatever, out of neighborhoods, Faith, family, friends, little you know, the Birkinian platoons. Yeah, the the if they're going to make a sitcom about your life, who are the other people in your life that would be casts in it, right? You know, the cast of Friends kind of thing. Um, you know, and he makes so Hayek makes this point that you know the values that make the microcosm work aren't the values of the extended order, the contractual society, capitalist society, and all that kind of stuff. I don't charge my daughter for food, right? Yeah, I don't yeah. charge her rent, right? We are almost literally in our families communists in the sense that it really is from each according to our ability to each according to our need, right? Yeah, you yeah. Know? If your kid's sick, you do whatever you have to do to take care of your kid, you know, because it's your kid, right? And yeah. But you can't do that for a stranger's kid, right? You can't – you know, if a stranger knocks on your door – um and says, well, you know, I need to crash here. And you're like, well, who, who the hell are you? Right? Yeah. If if your nephew knocks on your door and says, I need to crash here, oh, okay, come on in. You know, it's that's that's the difference between the microcosm and the macrocosm. And in the macrocosm, the glory of the macrocosm is that um, instead of the natural way that people dealt with people outside of the microcosm of the tribe, which was violence, we treat strangers as either citizens or customers. Um, it's a it's a system of cooperation that works really really well. Yeah. So I think where we both agree is that you cannot, and I think this is where I think your your piece is very persuasive, and I agree, and I just found myself nodding to it. You cannot take the values of the macrocosm and apply them to the microcosm because you'll destroy the family. If you start treating the family like a, just a normal business enterprise, you ruin the family. Yeah. Right. And similarly. If you take the values of the family or the tribe or whatever, the microcosm, and you try to apply them to the macrocosm, you'll destroy capitalism, you'll destroy liberty, you'll destroy freedom, <laughs> right? So it's all about staying in your freaking lanes, yeah, right? Yeah, right? yeah, exactly. And so I'm with you that part of the huge problem that we have, and this is what I think Schumpeter was right about, um, and I, I think that that James Burnham, and we'll get to him in a second, um, and all, and Irving Kristol and Daniel Bell and all these guys who talked about the cultural contradictions of capitalism and and the new class, um, they were right about this. Is that you know, you know, uh, Schumpeter talks at great length about how the values and efficiency of capitalism don't just destroy bad traditions like divine right of kings, right? They also destroy good traditions like the integrity of the family yeah. and. Um, and that's a real danger, and that's why I'm 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 a much more of a two cheers for capitalism guy than I, I used to be a three cheers for capitalism guy, but now I'm really basically two maybe one point nine cheers for capitalism guy. Um, but capitalism is the only thing that sort of gets us rich, and so I don't disagree with you. Um, my point is is that um, about the civil society part of it. Um, my point is is that. Um, 
I want I want everything to sort of stay. I want I, I want the the lines to be bright and clear both ways. Mm. And the the majority culture doesn't want want it wants to sort of impose all sorts of things on family life that I think are destructive to family life. And as a result, that creates this desire to impose the values of family life on the whole of society. And that is destructive as well. Yeah, I think that's actually very finely observed. And, I, 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 you know, so for me, I think I've taken a step. You've gone from three cheers to capitalism to two, and I've gone from one cheer to two. And I think I've also gone from, you know, uh, a, a more strictly nationalist politics to one that is, I don't know, you know, if you're looking for a label for me right now, I would say something more like small R Republican in some sure. ways that I see the sort of wisdom of mixed regimes. Uh-huh. And, you know, I think almost we need a mixed ideological regimes where we allow, you know, my fear from some cosmopolitans is that they have this egalitarian ethic and this rights ethic that they want to impose on every single institution right. all the way down, right? right? So it's like, hey, we have the. American Medical Association and the federal government, we define health care. So your Catholic hospital right. has to abide by this definition of health care and provide exactly these services and that's it. And to me, that's just – that is unfreedom, right. you know, pretty much by definition. And, you know, the the church, the family, you know, other civic association groups have to be able to define their chief values differently than egalitarianism and, you know – Wokeness. And human rights and wokeness. <laughs> yeah. You know, whatever. It just can't be their first concern. And in fact, it's it, – and because these things are becoming so omnipresent, um, you know, that every institution is now being criticized along these lines, I, I think it's just storing up an even larger backlash in the long run than Trump. No. And, and one that's – that I don't welcome, right? I'm, I'm one of these guys that I want the responsible people to come in and begin balancing these forces right. and channeling them constructively. I'm not a, I'm not a like the worse the better Nietzschean right. weirdo right guy. Uh, although you know, sometimes in traffic, I might, <laughs> <laughs> you know, my moods do change depending that. on the news cycle. <laughs> I understand. I, it is weird. I am like, I'm a pretty. Well-mannered, uh, respectful of women guy. Nothing brings out my misogyny more than the female <laughs> voice of Google Maps. And I just start yelling things. <laughs> I've, had, I've had to change Siri to a male voice on my phone. I have this male British-accented Siri on my phone now, so I feel like I'm yelling at Charlie Cook instead. But um, it's just the things I say that just enrage me in the car. But that's that's a story for another day. Um, uh, so – you know, I, 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 I've found all of this strange new respect, you know, from the sort of NPR daily show crowd um, of late. And I'm, I'm, I'm loath to squander it on this podcast. But because, um, uh, you know, people still like twitch when I bring up my first book, Liberal Fascism. But I kind of made this point in Liberal Fascism that, um, you know, the Germans had this concept called the Gleichschaltung, right? I'm, yeah. I think I'm pronouncing it correctly. And – it was a term like so many terms back then, which was borrowed from uh, electrical engineering, and it basically meant coordination, right? And it go, you can see why it's related to Hegel and all this kind of stuff because it was all this sort of idea that the body politic, all the organs of the body politic should be functioning together, right? That was like – that was Woodrow Wilson's complaint about separation of powers was the idea of having um, 
different organs in the body competing against each other. That's not natural. That's not Darwinian. They should all be working in concert towards the same end, right? So it was a very, very German idea. And, the, and so in the Gleichschaltung, people always will say, well, how can you say they're, you know, they're, total, you know, forget left wing, right wing, right? You know, the, the Nazi totalitarianism was very different from, say, communist totalitarianism in the sense that in Nazi Germany, if you had a um, fraternity, right, you were allowed to be nominally independent so long as the fraternity pronounced total allegiance to the national political program. Same thing with newspapers. You're only shut down if you disagreed, right? But otherwise, yeah. you were allowed to claim you were independent. And the whole idea was that every institution – um, from big corporations on down, this is the thing that people don't like about part of my – one of the things they don't like about my argument was that, you know, you, I, you know, I said that Nazi economics was left wing. And they said, well, that's crazy. They didn't nationalize all these industries. Well, they nationalized some of them. But they also said to industry, they made this bargain. You do – you follow our political program. You do everything that we say and we'll guarantee you market share. We'll guarantee you profits. You, but you have to hire all these people. And they basically turned big industry into utilities working for the state. And uh, but they were still nominally private, and so there's a kind of liberal social justice Gleichschaltung that we have in America. It's not putting people in camps. It's not about biological racism or anything like that. In fact, it claims to be absolutely against it. But it is still it's very much like the the Tom Sowell constrained versus unconstrained vision, right? The thing we're losing, I think, in this country, is comfort with the idea that there's a right to be wrong. Right? Yeah, I agree. And that, um, uh, you know, and this is one of my, you know, I, I, 20 years I keep writing these pieces trying to define what conservatism is. And I think one of the things that we'll put up on the show notes, one of the things I always say that is sort of essential to conservatism is simply comfort with contradiction, right? This yeah. idea that competing values can be at odds with each other, the idea that not all good things go together, the idea, if, particularly if you're a Christian, that, that, you know, this world is fallen and that yeah. the better world is in the next one and you can't create a heaven on earth. Because that's, that's what the logic of a heaven on earth is, is the, it's the unity of goodness, that we can perfect everything. All the good things will go together. Anything that requires – has a downside is a false choice, right? That's, it's, a, it's, a, right. it's a totalitarian way of thinking about the world. And I agree with you entirely that whatever you want to call the dominant ideological paradigm out there um, – that still claims to be rebellious um, is trying to impose uniformity of belief on every institution, right? Whether it's the Catholic Church or charities or whatever, and that's pernicious and dangerous. Yeah, i th I think it's it, I think it's storing up wrath for the future if if it's not corrected. I mean, I've been cheered in some ways by developments in Europe where I see, you know, Macron and others kind of, you know, once they're in office, responding to the kind of you know, demotic forces in their country that are trying shouting like, "Hey, we want immigration controlled yeah, and slowed yeah. down." Um, that's been good. Um, you know, and and we might quibble on some of the specific cases. Like, I think Hungary is a mixed is a mixed bag. When wow. I was over there, um, and I think the bigger issue, you know, is not for Merkel or someone else to kind of go after Orban, but for you know people in Hungary that oppose whatever Orban's doing to come up with a credible opposition party rather right. than 
this bunch of like fascists on one side and communist holdovers on the yeah. other. Yeah. It just creates this giant middle ground for him to capture. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so, you know, we might disagree there, but, uh, you know, anyway, I'm just – I just wanted to express in my little – in that little essay just that I was worried about these these kind of pre-liberal uh, institutions. You know, sometimes I've written about like society, uh, particularly in these platoons that we talk about, having a kind of treasury of resources mm-hmm. that uh, is diminish – you know, is diminishing, right, where – People are withdrawing and you see this in some sociology studies of, you know, Americans have fewer friends now than they right. did a generation ago, et cetera, fewer civic associations. You know, if people's families are much smaller than they used to be. Yeah. It used to be that you're, you're, you know, especially in ethnic New York, your extended family would have so many different human types and examples in it right. that it was much easier to kind of, you know, find either, you know – Dad wants you to be a lawyer, but you want to be something else. Well, your, you know, your third cousin that you see at every family reunion has this or that. That you know that stuff is kind of all retreating, and some of it can't be recovered or rebuilt. Um, but I, I worry about that. You know, um, I do too. I, I very and, much and, worry and about I that. worry. You know, sometimes I've talked about, and this, you know, some people chide me for this language, um, but this idea of networks. You know, a networking model of human society, which people that are – like you talk about complexity as a subsidy. Right. And I say like a networking thing, you know, the city air is free air, which you quote in right. your book. That works really well for people that have great cognitive ability, that have, um, you know, inherited wealth or advantage of some kind right. or some kind of edge, right? Like I, my half-sister has this edge, right? She's like – much younger than me and she's rocketing up to the top of her field in part because she has this one little edge in the fashion industry in that her mom works for an airline, a transatlantic airline. And so she can fly for free. Ah. So when her, you know, editor at, you know, her boss at Vogue says, well, I'm flying to Milan and I really need help and I don't know who's going to help me in Milan. I can help you because I can fly coach for free (laughs) of a standby. You know, so – uh, people that have access to those resources, whatever that they're blessed with uh, by history or right. happenstance, they do great in networks for a while. And it gives you this feeling of egalitarianism of like I'm kind of depositing favors into this network and the network is bestowing favors right. on me. But then there are other people who have to live in community and the community is more like that. You know, OK, the weaker members of the community call upon – the strength and resources of stronger people in the community and they have to have some moral ability to claim those resources. Mm. Otherwise, you're going to adopt an ethic of these people are just total human refuse and we got to right. we got to somehow get rid of them. Right. You know, create a social system that gets rid of them. And um and people aren't happy uh, if they're not – if they don't have that community resource. And and one of the great things about America at its best is it kind of balances these two modes of being where people that succeed really big in the network world and you know gain tons of wealth and resources from it, they also live in a community and then they give back to that community as a member, you know, right. as sort of the big man, the chief type figure yeah. uh, in this – in the pre-liberal order. And that I think is is maintaining that balance is good. Not everything can be uber, right? No, I think that's right. Like, and Charles Murray talks movingly about this. You know, I've heard him – I think he did it on this podcast. But we did, 
I've heard him give speeches about this. It's a, some of it's in coming apart. Some of it, you know, was the motivation for, for bell curve. You know, like he grew up in what was it, Newton, Iowa, Iowa, yeah. where which was a company town, it was a Maytag town, and the executives lived in Newton. So you had sort of um, vertical integration where of the of the culture where you had civic leaders, economic leaders, business leaders living in the town where the workers were and their kids, you know interacted with each other, went to the same schools, the, you could model good behavior. You know, elites were modeling good behavior, but they were yeah. also had a, a notion of, of involvement and reciprocity in the community. And now one of the problems with global capitalism is, you know, the executives of Maytag are going to be in some corporate hub a hundred a thousand miles away if the if there's even a factory in Newton, right? And, right. And so you don't have it everything's become horizontal instead of vertical like that. And um, and I think that's a that's one of the problems yeah. with capitalism. I mean, I, I don't you, know how you fix it, but it's a huge problem. I mean, I'm trying to imagine Tim Cook. Like, you, you know, you used to hear these old corporate stories, and sometimes television stations like engineer them, where oh, there's someone in the corporate office hears about someone who has someone in their family had a medical problem, yeah. you know, a worker that's 100 miles away, and, and then the corporate office does something for them. Like, I'm trying to imagine, like, Tim Cook hearing about, like, one particular problem with a Chinese worker <laughs> outside of Foxconn. Yeah, exactly. And then Tim Cook flies in to, <laughs> to deliver a check of, like, $8 <laughs> to get surgery. Doubling his income. <laughs> you know, um, so anyway, I, anyway, which is all to say, like, I don't think – um, I, I know some people that like to read me would love us to be at greater cross purposes, but I just I no longer feel that way anymore. And, and um, you know, maybe partly it was the the election of Trump, which you know for me, you know, Rich was like it should have been salad days for you, right? Like yeah, this yeah. is the, the he was making, you know, sometimes offering the alterations to Republican policy that I, I had wanted for a decade or longer. But I couldn't support him. I mean, I just yeah, couldn't no. support this guy on character grounds and fundamentally felt like, you know, the problem that you and others foresaw of, like, if these issues aren't redressed by responsible men, irresponsible men will come. Right. And here he comes. And I can't support him. And nor can I support the kind of hysteria he's generated yeah. in opposition to him. Uh, but at the same time, like, I am sympathetic sometimes. Like, uh, let me challenge people who like me. Uh, um, Max Boot, who I think has gone off the reservation in, in some ways. Yeah, I don't, I don't get what he's doing. But he wrote something that I, I did find pretty moving about this time, which was when he was faced with all this anti-Semitic bilge during the election, which was gross. He talked about the way that this was – acted in an insidious process where he didn't dwell a lot on his own ethnicity, on his own Jewishness, on his own ethnicity, and he kind of liked the freedom not to dwell on it. But he, he realized that um, these nationalist movements and an anti-Semitic, you know, I don't know, spasm in the public, they force you to dwell on it. Yeah. Right? They force you back into it. It works insidiously in that way. And I I was moved by what he wrote. I, I was I was moved by what he wrote about how, in a sense, he had this freedom. This you know, in a sense, the city air freedom um, of not being constrained by this. And then suddenly, this backlash comes. And this internet nastiness just wells up, 
and he's forced to live a different way. Yeah. Uh, and and that is I don't know, I just think anyone anyone grappling with these issues has to has to think about that. Yeah, as as the ADL's uh sixth most uh anti-Semitic uh, attacked <laughs> a guy in America. I have, I have some sympathy for that because I've always been a fairly deracinated Jew. I mean, I call myself – there's an actual <laughs> – there's a bingo card for this podcast which has uh, pseudo-intellectual demi-Jew is one of the phrases that keeps coming up. So, um, you're, you're an ethnic New Yorker. That's right. That's, that's how I see things. And um, uh, – but, you know, and this is part – this is the thing that drives me nuts about, you know, the left, um, whenever I say that there is a you – know, so like a couple of weeks ago, Ramesh and I did that response to Rich about you know criticizing Trump or whatever. And, um, and so of course people on the left liked it because we're criticizing you – know, uh, first of all, they love it when we eat our own. They <laughs> want to make it more of a thing. Rich was you – know, anyway, so E.J. Dion – Tweets this thing where he says, Jonah Goldberg and Ramesh Panuru, or uses our Twitter handles, whatever, says, this is a very good piece by then, but maybe you guys should spend a little more time thinking about the things that you did and that the ideas you put forward that led to Trump or that conservatives did that led to Trump. Now, first of all, I kind of feel like I've paid my dues doing some of that, <laughs> right, already. And, um, but I responded, you know, uh, Maybe and also maybe liberals can think about some of the things they've done that led to the backlash that made Trump, you know, possible. And my God, the attacks I would get from people say, "How dare you? We didn't, you know, liberals didn't had nothing to do with getting Trump elected. We didn't vote for this guy. He's all yours. He's your creation." And that is, you know, total BS, right? So, so the same thing you're talking about with Max Boot, where they say, you know, all the anti-Semitism stuff aroused in him a a Jewish consciousness of sorts, yeah. right? Um, for 30 years, 40 years now, but really in intensity in the last 10, 15 years, you're all this stuff about how whiteness itself is evil, right? I mean, on every college campus, yeah. there is in the syllabus black studies, Hispanic studies, gay and lesbian studies, all these things, and they're all celebratory of these differences, these forms of identity. Whiteness studies, go look it up. You know, it is always about how whiteness is a myth. How whiteness is uh, a structure of oppression, how we need to get rid of it, we need to destroy it, get rid of the concept of whiteness. And everywhere you hear in popular culture is part of the sort of the Gleichschaltung point you're making. Um, it's all about um, structures of oppression and, and white privilege and white supremacy and all this kind of stuff. Well, if you tell one of your relatives who probably never really thought of themselves as white in the first place, like I said this on NPR the other day, and they were like, the whitest thing you could possibly say is say you never thought of yourself as a white person. Well, like, you really want everyone to think of them, all the white people to think of themselves as that their white identity defines them? And that's the thing is if you start attacking people, yeah. that you're going to activate in them a defensive mechanism, right? And so you get people who – like, wait a second. You know, my dad fought in Vietnam. My grandfather fought World War II. My great-great-grandfather maybe fought for the Union Army. I'm supposed to be ashamed of him? I'm the, ba I'm the bad guy? You know, why, why – and you start saying, you know, this country did some pretty good things with white people. And you start thinking about yourself explicitly in those terms, which I think is bad. Um, I have much less of a problem thinking of yourself as an Irish person or an Italian person because there's actually a heritage there. Yeah. I mean it seemed like – I mean I used to talk about this with um, uh, my old roommate, friend. I took his job at the American Conservative. Uh, 
uh, Jim Antle, who's at the uh-huh. Washington Examiner. And, and we used to talk about how there was almost like this hidden premise in American life of, um, you know, part of the civil rights, uh, the, you know, kind of the residue of the civil rights movement was that there would be this continuing sense of like black uh, consciousness, racial consciousness in America. But we could and we could have that and have that within a framework of equality before the law. And there was kind of a, a, a subterranean agreement of and whites won't cultivate this consciousness among themselves. Right, right, right. You know, uh, and that f- was, I think, a a better arrangement than the one that we're rapidly heading toward is it, you're right. I mean, it, it is interesting. What reaction do you expect, right? If you say, okay, um, uh, guy in middle America, you can't object to immigration uh, levels being this high because right. uh, doing so is necessarily racist. And um, we are obliging you to be totally indifferent about the, uh, demographic transformation of your country on our side though we are obliged to be really excited about it right. because it disempowers you you right. sucker right it's and and, and there's all these pieces but yeah 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 you're losing status nah, 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 and they're making fun and they're like <laughs> and you expect them i always say thank you sir may i have another i mean it's a very strange yeah thinking you know yeah so i that to me is like begging for for conflict, I mean, and, and maybe on a subconscious level, they are begging for it in the sense of they want to bring out an evil that, that is, you know, able to be slain in public. I, I don't know. I th- I sometimes think there are like deeper psychological forces at, at, at work at times. But um, but if you are obliging that guy to be indifferent to transformation, if the democratic results come in and say, okay, we want to restrict immigration for the next you know, period as we've done in the past for 10, 20, 30 years while we assimilate this enormous wave of migration we've right. taken in since 65. Why can't I oblige you to be indifferent to, you know, the the demographic change that's just baked in? Right. You know, why do you get to be excited about my diminution of power? But if I even notice that my my diminution of power is happening, that is seen as a total danger. Yeah. And what's interesting is, of course, is this only falls on – it falls disproportionately. It falls on the uh, the shame of this uh, – that this ideology tries to impose on Joe Restrictionist. It, it falls disproportionately on people that don't have power, right? Because people that do have power, people that do have money and resources and can – and act well in the network, they're still going to get their kids into good schools. They're right. still going to get all those resources. They're not experiencing any, any diminution in their in their uh, in their pride in their life, you know, expectancy or whatever. But elsewhere, you're seeing seeing this, and and that's kind of what I fought. I, I think I'm still fighting these uh, post mortem battles where. Uh, you know, these studies come out of academia and saying, well, you know, there's no real – the put-upon Trump voter, the the economic left-behind thesis doesn't explain anything. It's all about cultural resentment. And usually when you look into these studies, the the and there's one that just came out yesterday. When you look into these studies, they're bunk. They're, they're yeah. designed to hide things, right? There was one that came out yesterday. And I'm chairing a panel with the author of the study tomorrow. But she basically defines, okay, 
you fall in the economic anxiety bucket if you've experienced a financial reversal between 2012 and 2016. That's it. But of course, the the left behind thesis was there's been this great period of globalization since the 1990s that's right. upended everything. And then you fall in the cultural resentment bucket if you are concerned about trade with China because concern about trade is necessarily ethno-nationalist, not economic mm. because uh, that was my last study that I did, which yeah, was yeah, that, yeah. Uh, that trade is entirely – and I don't disagree that there are – that you know people that have a more ethno-nationalist kick in their politics tend to be – Are going to be more concerned about this stuff. Uh, yeah, sure. going to be yeah, more yeah. concerned about that and I – and I take it and I, I take Kevin Williamson sometimes makes this point that people have this irrational fear of trade and of kind of pollution by interaction with foreigners. I take all that. But that isn't the totality to, – to redefine any political concern about trade exclusively in those terms and put all those people in the cultural resentment bucket yeah, is no basic. Way. It's just stacking the deck. Yeah. And, and it, it feels like warmed over sort of Hofstetter and Adorno stuff. Yeah. You know? And so, I, you know, I think, you know, and I, I fight against this stuff even though it's a losing battle because academia can just churn out endless amounts of this stuff and journalists will credulously repeat it uh, without really even looking at the study and without the critical ability to think about the study. I fight against it because I, I want to get to a point where we have a political class that that approaches the problems that got us here with some level of intelligence. Yeah. And and I I'm despairing of that though. Well see this is uh, so I'm not gonna bring up the Putnam study again about how waves of of immigration are corrosive to civil society, right? But I just name checked it. There you go. But you know, this is a point I make to um Donors of AI all the time when I give talks to them, I was like, "Look, you know, this room, you guys almost to a person probably only know two kinds of immigrants. You know, some guy who's at your law firm or at your bank or is a partner and whatever who is probably got a PhD and went to Harvard and is originally from India or wherever, and he's he's a highly compensated and you know impressive legal immigrant who." Um, Maybe he came from China and got an engineering degree, whatever. But you know super successful one percenter immigrants. And then you know these guys who do amazingly good work landscaping your house or one of your houses, right? <laughs> and um, Or maybe you know an incredibly hardworking maid or nanny. The, and that is, the, that is the extent to which immigrants really affect your life. You're either – marvel at their industriousness and their hard work and their American work ethic and, and the immigrant work ethic, which is wonderful, or uh, they are fellow globalist one percenter types that you respect for their intellect and their culture and all the rest, right? So the ex to the extent that the one percenter types' kids go to your kid's school, who cares, right? You yeah. Know? But if you're in, in some place in sort of middle America – struggling, you know, smaller community or struggling town and your school's full of immigrant kids who don't speak English or are struggling with English. The, well, the And they switch uh, – and in some schools, they'll switch the language of instruction to Spanish even for the American-born English speakers. Like, yeah. I've seen that locally where, near where I live. Right. I mean, and I, and I'm, I don't think – And I, not that I'm against learning Spanish, but – Right. But – 
but that's a big change, right? That's, no, that's exactly right. And also, you know, you see – and I think too much blame is put on the workers who stand outside the Home Depot wanting to do stuff. But but if you're, if you're a construction guy, you – my only point is, is that if – is that the cultural economic valiance of um, – uh, or frequency of of immigration plays completely different to the people who whose institutions are being taxed, whose church is full of people who don't speak their language, and it's not necessary. But obviously, bigots are going to have a problem with that. Yeah. But you don't have to have you don't have to be a bigot to think this isn't quite fair, or this is a problem, or this is just making this not seem like my town anymore. Especially when when it's. It, Especially when it was accomplished as it was with a lot of just neglect of the law, right? right. I mean, right. like I had um, – my mother's cousin was in the kind of contracting business in the 80s and then as this wave started increasing in the 90s of illegal migrants, this guy was very you know, kind of scrupulous and fastidious. He only hired legal – people who could work legally, had their licenses, had their insurances and all that. He was out of business by the end of the 90s. Yeah. You know, he was just – he had lost all of that investment in himself because he wanted to follow the law. Yeah. You could probably guess what his attitude about illegal immigration is. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. Like yeah. – and and he has a point, right? Sure. Like – and I have nothing against the, the guy that's coming in is working – you know, if you come to America and you are from – you're from Mexico, you're from, uh, you know, Argentina, you have the, these manual trade skills – and you come here and you realize that the American culture is totally indifferent about like labor law, at least at this level of right. the thing. Well, that's their culture. I don't, I, so I don't blame them for coming here and, and taking the opportunity. The opportunity is there. Um, but like, you know, Tucker Carlson wrote in Politico before the election, if like the immigrants were coming and they were becoming illegally licensed green energy lobbyists. Right, right, <laughs> like, right, right. No, you right. have a very different political valence um, uh, to these reactions. And uh, and that's all. You know, it was interesting. I mean, we'll see how it, how it plays out. I do think, you know, the great wave of migration into the United States seems to be – is slowing down somewhat. Right. It's not just Trump. It's it's not that. It's also just the the rise of of um, the relative rise of South American countries in their in their economies is kind of staunching the demand to kind of come to the right. United States. So we may be kind of coming to an end of it, and maybe we're debating about a war. You know, a, a war that's already over in right, some sense. Right, right. But you know that that. All of that led to here, and you know the next the next populist battle I think is going to be about the relative power of the cities and the the unlivability of cities for middle class families. Right, yeah. that all the economic opportunities being reconcentrated in you know London, New York, Dublin, Boston, you know Washington, L.A., San right. Francisco, Tokyo, like yeah. just this network of cities that are extremely well networked with each other. And in a way, like one of the things I know you say you're kind of cool with non-Westphalian systems. I would argue with you there that <laughs> one of the benefits of Westphalian systems was connecting a city to its um, nation's country, countryside economy. Sure. And I, I do worry there's a kind of a uh, an emerging kind of 
proto-city-state uh, alliance against every every country. Well, let's talk about that. Country. I, I, I have not thought this through, but I mean, this is one of, you know, one of the things I try to tell people about the podcast, this podcast is I never have a plan going in yeah, yeah. That, that survives at least the first five minutes. So um, uh, this is kind of one of my out there theories that I'm still working on. It might need to be workshopped. Well, um, no, no, no. <laughs> I, think, I think it's interesting. But, you know, so, so first of all, we can geek out a little bit on the conservative intellectual history part of this, right? So first of all, you know, um, Albert J. Nock, who you – what are we holding? I brought up um, Journal of Forgotten Days. Oh, my the, gosh. Look at that. It was on the shelf and I thought I'd bring it for the Remnant podcast. Oh, very exciting. We should do a re- staged reading. <laughs> um, uh, Albert J. Nock, you know, the, the Remnant podcast is uh, – the name Remnant is inspired by Nock. We don't have to go back into all that. But he was – you would chase at least some of your lineage back to the Lockean variety at some your family your intellectual family tree goes back there somewhere yeah know? yeah it, it, okay. it probably hits there um yeah, yeah i mean definitely the skepticism of the of the democratic party in the 30s and 40s right yeah, sure um so knock was one of the so one of my big complaints about is like my friend frank franklin Foer, right who i yeah. know because i used to share an office with them uh he and sam tannenhaus and a bunch of these liberals in the late 90s and into the 2000s would constantly write about these obscure conservatives that I love, right? And they would and, – and Tannenhaus in particular, they would write about them precisely because they, they, they were great because they didn't matter, right? It was, it yeah, was yeah. their lack of influence, right, and their exoticness. Like you – and one of the things – one of the common themes was how much they loved the fact that they wore capes, right? And it was like <laughs> – so Nock wore a cape, Kirk wore a cape. There were a bunch of these guys who wore cape, uh, capes. Partly because, uh, like, Eric von Knudlidin, who yeah, I can never yeah. pronounce right, he was a cape wearer. Oh was, man! Because he was from, um, he was from Hungary, right? He was from Budapest. Yeah, yeah. So you could see how, or maybe it was Vienna. I can't remember. But he was, he was one of the last great defenders of the Habsburgs. And, um, and I, you know, my dad made me read an Intelligent American's Guide to Europe when I was like sixteen, and it's been a huge influence on me ever since. But anyway, um, Nock writes about how, you know. He sees no reason why one shouldn't like Belgium as much as the United States and that this idea that we have to sort of um, have this allegiance to um, a single nation as the definer of our identity, um, he thought was kind of silly. Now, I don't go that far. I like being an American. I'm a nationalist in that sense, right? Um, But I remember long ago in the corner – I had some snide thing about people who were renouncing their citizenship over some political thing or something like that or um, I can't remember what provoked it. But uh, at the time, Mark Stein, Andy Stutterford, Andrew Stutterford and, a, and maybe even Derb. Um, but some of the British guys were like, that's crazy. You know, like sometimes you change your citizenship just to get along – get go along with your life and you follow your path and that's all the rest and you shouldn't overly emphasize it. Today, I don't think those same guys or even similar people would have the same attitude about that, right? Mm. And um, so I don't remember exactly how I'm getting here. But um, my point is is that – well, I'll, I'll make up a point and then you can respond to it. Um, the uh, cosmopolitanism used to be a thing – among certainly among libertarians, oh, it yeah. still is right, but also among certain segments of the right, right? It was, oh yeah, and, for sure. Um, um, this idea I think it still is on the on the edges. I think it still is in some ways. 
Yeah, I mean, I mean, I'm trying to think. I mean, I, I, I think of, you know, um, like one of the funny things about this cosmopolitan versus nationalist dialectic is that is that most people that call themselves cosmopolitans, at least in Britain and America, are monolingual English speakers, That's right. right? Yeah. And then, like, I think of guys like who want to be nationalists, like um, – you know, a guy who was a bit of an influence on me in the 90s, uh, Tom Fleming over at Chronicles, which uh-huh. is really like – this is like uh, – you know how Marvel is, is looking to make something like uh, – what's the new movie they want to make? They've like run out of superheroes. So now they're like the externals or the eternals. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. So like Chronicles magazine is like the eternals of the conservative movement in the 90s. Right? Yeah, yeah, Like this magazine out of Rockford. And Thomas Fleming, you know. Hard paleo. Hard paleo conservative yeah. inreach publication. Brilliant. I think really brilliant in the 90s at some points. But like Tom Fleming as a nationalist was kind of like a funny idea in some ways because like this is a guy who speaks several languages. Yeah. is like so deep into the history of the Austro-Hungarian Empire and other yeah, yeah. and other things. You know he he's reading film fl- you know Filmer and others like it's Sir Robert Filmer. It's it's just not um like he doesn't strike you as like a hard hat nationalist right. uh, you know in the modern sense in any way whatsoever. So that some of this is like some of these terms are almost like uh, aspirational in some no, ways. I, I, you know, people the, are like psychologically compensating of like I have no culture, so I'll just pretend to like lots of cuisines and identify with cosmopolitan politics. Or I don't feel I have been intellectual. I grew up in the small town, but I was really intellectual. I went to college. Now I've come out of college with all these ideas and the Austro-Hungarian Empire in my head. So I'm gonna kind of. Play up my nationalism and and uh, yeah, I mean, it, 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 it kind of, there was a character on Mash um, who was like I think he was a dentist who fell so in love with Japan that he only wore Japanese clothing and he only talked. <laughs> and to me, some of this nationalist stuff, particularly from the um, uh, the sort of right wing equivalent of the grass eating males that you write about, yeah, 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 it's it's kind of like a fashion thing, right? Yeah, and. Um, People forget that the second Ku Klux Klan, right, the one from the 1920s, was basically a movie cult, right? I mean, it starts with Birth of the Nation, and so instead of dressing up like Darth Vader, they dressed up like Klansmen, and that's where it was sort of born. It came out of that. It was a pop culture thing more than it was a deeply rooted Southern thing the way it was with the first Klan. Yeah. And, and so some of the nationalist stuff, not here at NR where people have been writing and talking about it for 30, 40 years, but some of it, you know, the sort of astroturfy grassroots body Twitter stuff, it's just crap to say. And I don't think they've really thought through a lot of it. Yeah, I think that's it. I also think it's um, – in some ways it is a reaction. It is a, a disgust reaction, right? Like some people online, right? And a lot of these, you know, these alt-right weirdo Twitter accounts with anime avatars or whatever, like th- that's almost like a stereotype. It's definitely something they adopted precisely because it scandalizes a larger culture right. that they just don't like, right. right? Like, and there is like nationalists to own the libs. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like, it's play acting in a way, and um, you know, although play acting in some sense, play acting has always been a part of nationalism, like sure. historically too. Like, you know, when you say that um, the, the Bellamy Nationalist Clubs that overtook the entire country. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think in the Irish nationalist. Uh, History, you know, there was the a particular theater company or theater 
in Dublin called the Abbey Theatre that sort of became the center of this, you know, Irish renaissance of literature. And they started putting on nationalist plays. And, you know, this stuff was kind of like a constructed vision of what the country could be, like this right. heroic ideal. And at the same time, it was – you know, it's the, the echoes in our own time are very obvious, right? It was like Ireland was part of the British – you know, it was part of the United Kingdom of Ireland and, and Great Britain. It was part of this global liberal empire. Commerce was proceeding. Modernization was happening at like a very fast clip. And commercial society was reordering life in this in this country. And there was this desire among intellectuals, you know, your Rousseauian villains in some mm. sense sometimes, to strike back and find these heroic ideals again that, that would make sense of, you know, self-sacrifice, that would make sense of, you know, war uh, yeah. as war was coming in World War One. Yeah. And, and so they, they, inv- they would invent this tradition, right? And in Japan too, like these kids – some of them pretend to be in these into these novels of this Japanese nationalist guy Mishima, I mm-hmm. mean, uh, kind of an obscure figure for most people. But like that guy made his whole life like a stage play of like a man devoted, so devoted to his nation that he would like give up his whole life for it. And uh, yeah, well, so look, I mean, I, I, I cut a lot of this stuff from the book because the book was way too long when I finished it. Um, but you know, I read a lot of fict. And Herder, right? And so, for listeners who, who don't know, uh, both named Johann, right? Uh, um, Ficht and Herder were the, two of the intellectual founders of German nationalism. And one of the things that people don't really people think that nationalism is this ancient concept, right? This ancient creed that goes way back, because there are some ancient nations, obviously, right? Yeah, there's there's old nations, and nations have been around for a long time, right? And but, countries have been around for a long time, right? Yeah. But, the con the, mo- the 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 nationalism as this concept basically emerges in the eighteen hundred early eighteen yeah. hundreds as a response primarily in Germany to um, the seemingly cruel both intellectually and culturally oppressive imposition of French Enlightenment values by at the at the hands of the Napoleon's army in Germany right and so Herder you know has all these things about. Um, spit out that slime of the Seine and speak German, right? And Ficht, if you read Ficht's, you know, major addresses on, um, or is it Fichte? I don't know how do you pronounce it. I think Ficht. Yeah, because yeah. Ficht, um, you know, he has this stuff where he writes, he says this stuff about about the German language. It was interesting. Both Herder and Ficht um, Emphasize the German language above everything else, right? Yeah, yeah. And um, that's big in Irish nationalism. Brothers, the Brothers Grimm. All of that stuff was inspired by Herder's. This idea of rediscovering these ancient German folkways, right, to create a German nation. Because at the time, Germany was like what eighty little principalities and little city states and all that kind of stuff, right? And and you read Fit and you want, oh my God, this guy's a Nazi, right? Because it's all of this stuff. He doesn't like Jews and all that. But you, it sounds like biological racism and you have to check yourself. And they go, well, wait a second. Biological racism doesn't show up for like another 100 years almost, right? Uh, yeah, or maybe yeah. 70 years depending on who you talk to. you know. Um, and it's all this stuff about how German is the true authentic language and it's the only one that wasn't tainted by the vile – you know, Semitic or Latin things of the Roman Empire and the Mediterranean, all this kind of stuff, right? And um, and so this, you know, originally nationalism, 
in the academic literature is called romantic nationalism because it was this invention of the romantic era. And, you know, what is it that Weber, Max Weber says is that the, the, the defining spirit of our age is the disenchantment of the world. Yeah. Right. And and so Ernest Gellner, this guy who I'm pretty invested in, um, he calls modern nationalism, communism, socialism, all of these things, reenchantment creeds. And it is a way to – which is something I think we're both sympathetic to – of dealing with the problem of, of – the market order, right? The contractual extended order, um, the Gesellschaft order, right? Yeah, it's and trying to put meaning back into it because God was cleared out of it, religion was cleared out of it, um, those sort of community notions were cleared out of it, and these creeds are these reenchantment creeds, as Gellner puts it, are um, attempts to sort of color back in what have been the erased co- colors and contours of our society to give people meaning again. And my objection to nationalism is that, again, as it's discussed, it isn't going to give a lot of people meaning because it is a, more of a fashion thing than it is um, um, a serious, moral, programmatic way of organizing your life. How do you live as a nationalist, right? Right. How do you treat other people as a nationalist? When you wake up in the morning, how are your interactions with friends and family and coworkers informed by your nationalism? I don't know what the answer to that is. It's not – I mean I'll give you one as a nationalist. It, that's not what nationalism speaks to, right? Nationalism is more of um, – you know, a nationalist sentiment is, hey, when your country's at war and your number is called, you don't find the like worst, like most embarrassing legalistic excuse no, that's to, fair. Right. to go off to another country and avoid service. Sure, and sure, sure. If you're rich, you, you give something back, you know, in some way to – uh, the betterment of your nation in some way. And that might be a, a private uh, meaning for that. It might be funding a library or mm-hmm. whatever. So I think I think that's true. I, I do think that like um, – but, 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 uh, but, but, but So your definition, just to push back a little bit, right? Sure, so your, yeah. your definition is basically – which I find totally unobjectionable on the merits, right? I'm, we're, we're, we're having a label contest, right? right? Uh, um, is just another way of saying social solidarity – you could you could make the exact same arguments, almost except maybe the war one about just being a good Christian, right? right. Which is a real enchantment creed. <laughs> you know, it does right. tell you how to live your life. Um, you, I could say, that, you know, that's very very difficult for me to to see how your definition of nationalism differs in any way from patriotism. So I would say, okay, it differs a little bit. So I'll say this. Uh, so there's another. You know, I, I'm kind of grounded in Irish nationalism. I'm kind of writing a book about uh, that touches on it a lot. And um, Patrick Pierce was kind of the lead uh, guy in the 1916 rebellion, and he was um, a language activist. And he was very much he was obsessed with the. I don't even want to use the word obsessed. It's almost pejorative. He uh, was big on promoting the Irish language mm-hmm. um, and – Now, forgive me. That's Gaelic? Y- so it's often called Gaelic but it's uh-huh. it's it's just – in English, you just call it Irish because uh-huh. Gaelic really refers to Scots Gaelic, which is a relative of Irish. Because until, until you started talking about the Irish language on the editor's podcast, I had never heard it phrased that way. Right. Yeah, it's mostly not. But anyway, it, it's – in Irish, it's called Gaelga. Um, but in any way, he was he was promoting this language, and in the context he was at the beginning of the twentieth century, 
you've had uh, the English had an official policy of anglicizing Ireland mm-hmm. to, to domesticate it, you know, in a sense, to make it ruly, that the Irish language was this major obstacle toward, right. towards ruling it. And so Irish had been reduced to this um, – the Irish language had been reduced to um, basically like an Irish reservation on the west coast of that island where it had – it was the language of poor and of the poor and of poverty. Um, it, it, you know, it didn't even go through what most languages went through the Protestant Reformation, right? Because mm-hmm. the English were like, no, we're going to teach you English first. And then instead of making you Protestants, we kind of want to keep you in your confined lower social status here. Right, 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 right. So it, it never got the solicitation from the Reformation or from the scientific revolution. And so, you know, um, you know, people called it a bit the Irish language and all – uh, Celtic languages, a badge of poverty, Breton mm-hmm. and others that were – the French were stamp, stomping out in Brittany. And what Pierce was doing in a way was he elevated the language. He kind of almost like tried to reverse the polarity and mm-hmm. say actually this is this incredible spiritual inheritance that we have. Right. And in, in a way it was – and I don't think he meant to even instrumentalize it but what he was doing was he was trying to say there is something in this country natively – to be proud of, mm-hmm. that we don't have to be... It's con- very similar to the stuff I was reading about Germany. Right. Like, yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it comes out of the ex- experience of humiliation, right? right. And, and and sort of it's like the first step towards national liberation would be thinking that you have a nation and that you, it's worth and, conserving. And then from, you need your moment in the sun, as the Kaiser would have put it later. Right? Yeah. Right? It, a self-assertion. Yeah. I don't mean any of this in pejorative terms. Right. No, and, the, and the, that is what they... they the, the Irish nationalists proceeded to it. They, they, they kind of rewrote Irish history in some sense to be a history of these rebellions against British rule. And there are often these rebellions. They're not always against British rule. Sometimes they're against Protestant rule. Right. right. And for Catholic rule, even if that Catholic rule is in, in London, is, is London, <laughs> you know, is in London. But they, they invented this, this rebellious tradition. And, and in a way, they are, um, you know, it's sort of like it's half true on the facts, but but 150 percent true on the the mythic quality. Uh-huh. And you know, then he goes and gets himself killed in a rebellion, and um, <laughs> suddenly Irish is made the official language of the Irish state that emerges, and it becomes compulsory in education, etc. Right, right, right. And now, almost 100 years later, surprising people even 50, 30 years ago, it's now becoming the language of of an emergent elite, you know, because basically uh, posh people in Dublin who didn't want to send their kids to schools with lots of Polish immigrants right. were sending them to Irish language only schools. Oh, and, that's interesting. And so now, now the, the prospects for a revival, which seems so dim for so long, are actually kind of picking up oh, because it's it, the 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 status of the language that he had he had shifted. Um, you know, only rhetorically a hundred years ago right. is now actually starting to become a soci- sociological reality yeah, of, yeah, yeah. of there is an elitist um, element that people might start imitating. Yeah. And it's lost the association of like this is the language of people that smell like turf fires and like <laughs> wear, wear shawls and stuff like that. And But I, I kind of buy into a little bit of – Pierce had this idea of a nation is – you know, he would call it a spiritual tradition. Mm-hmm. Um, that you want to conserve and say that it's it's hard to kill a nation. Um, they're hardy plants, right? Mm-hmm. Um, 
but when you do, it's gone forever. You can't revive it. Right. And uh, except you know, it's kitsch. You know, there's no like Hittite. You know, you right. can't become a Hittite or right. be a Hittite nationalist. It's yeah, a, yeah, yeah. You could learn Hittite language and go to the University of Chicago and study it. Right, right, right. But you can't be a Hittite. Right. You right. can be an Irishman, and and Pierce did allow that. You know, the the um, descendants. He didn't make it biological or anything like yeah. that. He said the descendants of the Anglo-Irish. You know, in the 12th century of the Tudor plantation or whatever, would over time be assimilated, you know, basically be assimilated into right. this um, and, and see it as they and see it as theirs. And I, I do believe there's something to that. And I think, and in in the American context, I do think as long as it's not the, you know, in a sense, the spiritual tradition of the American nation uh, continues. I do believe people that came here after 1965 will have children and grandchildren, great, great, great grandchildren someday that will say George Washington is the father of my nation, mm-hmm. which is a, which is fundamentally not like a political statement based on citizenship. It's a it's a statement about your the way you identify your nationality, and uh, that's that's different. They may say I came from this country. Right. You know, I came from Ecuador, I came from uh India, I came from China, but George Washington is the father of my country. And and I I think that will happen. So long as so long as we we pace things and don't break the break the country pol- entirely. Right. I mean, that's I mean, and that's where we would agree in that the on the optimistic side is that we need to teach people to do that. Though. Yeah, I mean, right? you, yeah. There's no. There's. Uh, I mean, it's just a thing. I think it's natural for the conservative party in any polity to be the party of assimilation and and integration, right? Right. Uh, and and I I do think it's something we should emphasize more. I mean, I think as a I think because we're so tied to a Republican party that has a very specific. Um, electoral agenda and strategy every four years. I do think we sometimes lose sight of this larger social mission, which isn't necessarily all the work of elected politicians, which is this idea of, um, okay, if we say we have this great inheritance, let's share it even with people who aren't going to vote for our party. At, right. You know what I mean? Like it's not like we're just going to put on a – a, a Coke-funded seminar for recent immigrants, and then they're going to be Repu- Republican voters. We want to just share this inheritance and and help people feel at home in America. And that's that's fundamentally. It. I mean, my I follow Roger Scruton in some ways, and say that the, you know na- the nation is what's great about the nation state and the nation is you have a shared loyalty based on shared territory and shared law. Mm-hmm. And in a way that's more capacious and more tolerant than, you know, the alternatives, which are often uh, either tr- exclusively tribal or ideological, right? Mm-hmm. Like you can be – anyone could be a, uh, in the Soviet bloc as long as you're a communist the whole right. time. Right. You know, a nation state is a little bit more capacious than that. No, look, I, I agree with that and, and I'm, I'm – I share with you and I've been writing about, you know – the embedded knowledge and institutions and constructs that um, is so deeply in there that the rational mind can't even see it sometimes, right? Yeah. And, um, you know, Hayek has this line about how there's more embedded knowledge and money than anything that we can ever grasp. And I don't think it's just in money. I think it's in 
all sorts of institutions, rules. You know, the analogy I always use is think about all the unbelievable trial and error that was required to come up with any modern cuisine, you know, like French food, right? I mean, how many th- how many people were poisoned by eating <laughs> weird crap or stale crap or, or spoiled food um, or berries that you can't that – you, that are poisonous unless you cook them the right way? You know, you think about the Japanese blowfish thing with the poison sack and all that kind of stuff. And so the final dish that we get, we don't know the, the rich history that produced it. Yeah. We just know the final product and we think, oh, that's our culture. And But there's massive amounts of – knowledge, trial and error embedded in um, even a plate of French fries, right? I mean, about just where where the potato came from, how they figured out how to cook it, all that kind of stuff. And we look at the end product and say, well, you know, this is is all I need to know because we can't get at the knowledge that comes behind it. And I think that's true with nation states. I mean, I think there's a lot of stuff involved in a concept of a nation that is hugely important. Yeah. Um, And I don't dismiss it. I, I, I... my again, my problem is 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 um, particularly for America. You know, it's I think it's a little different for the English. It's a little different for the Irish. It's a little different for the French, um, where you have to struggle much more with the conception of ethno nationalism yeah. and, and real and and other and civic nationalism, right? And in America, um, this distinction between patriotism and nationalism, which Rich hates now. Um, I think is still a a useful one, um, but I wouldn't want to get rid of all nationalist sentiment. Right? Yeah, I mean, I've, I've been writing for years. My favorite favorite holiday is Thanksgiving, and it's a profoundly nationalist holiday, right? Because yeah. first of all, it predates the founding by what a hundred years, something like that. You know, yeah, and, yeah, I mean, in one way or another, yeah, yeah, and it's it's about giving gratitude for the soil and giving gratitude to God for pro, you know for providing. Right and pre- gratitude for your family and these these connections that are much more, in the finest sense of it, blood and soily than you know yeah, anything no, true. conceptual. Right, and I, that stuff I think is great, and I don't want I don't I don't want to besmirch it. Yeah, and and it's cool too because it's one of these things where it's it's an open enough tradition that every family seems to pile in their own stuff, family traditions, ethnic traditions into it, yeah. which is awesome. Yeah, and it's and you know and. I, I assume since you are a, a, a serious Christian, you know, part of the problem – it's a Schumpeterian point. But part of the problem with what's happened with Christmas is it's just, you know, conspicuous consumption holiday. Yeah. You know, and um, – I mean I like it somewhat in some ways too. Of course <laughs> I like you do. It's, it's uh, awesome, uh, especially if you have kids, right? <laughs> Giving kids presents is one of the greatest things in the world, yeah. you know, and – but the thing I love about Thanksgiving is none of that stuff is involved. It's just the people you care about around the yeah, table and all that kind of stuff. And and you know it's funny too because it actually even has the like joy of tradition that you just articulated in the French cuisine point is kind of baked into Thanksgiving in a way. Unless you, I mean, maybe you have issues with your relatives and 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 you know or broken families, and that makes Thanksgiving difficult. But ideally, Thanksgiving has none of the like. 
oh, what am I going to get this person? Right, right. Oh, how am I going to arrange this? And there's enough prescriptiveness to what the meal should be. Right. And people do it every year and they kind of repeat it every year almost like liturgically. So you kind of know how it's going to happen. Like you know. You got a script. You know every year grandma is going to screw up the green bean casserole and then she's never going to sit down at the table and you've got to pull her to sit down. And repeating all those things in this kind of scripted way every year in a a – Slightly new ways people get older and more kids get added. And or, someone else gets the car of the turkey. Someone, yeah. whatever. Like th- that's kind of this joy of – I think that is almost – that should be the teaching point for conservatives on like what is the joy of tradition and inherited embedded ritual in society. And that's why I loathe with a blinding passion all of these – Freaking idiotic hot take Vox articles every year about how to talk about how your to, crazy Trump supporting how uncle to, about you know blah 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 how to instrumentalize this yeah, yeah, and yeah, yeah. turning it into you know and it, it, it's a Gleichschaltism argument they're trying to impose this exterior stuff into this incredibly beautiful like inner cocoon of of the microcosm right it's like it's like a, it's like a German version of the old Reese's commercial you know you you got your gazelle shaft in my gamine shaft. You know, it's like, this, keep that crap out of it. You know, tell old stories about dead relatives and loved ones and what people were like when they were kids. That's what Thanksgiving is for. Right. But to do that, to do that, I we probably have to wrap up. Yeah, soon, we do. But uh, th- to do that, I mean, you, we do have to shore up those, those pre-liberal institutions. And, like, if you grow up in a family that is – divided and redivided by divorce and remarriage and then you move off to somewhere else like it's harder to to engage in that tradition right? it's it's so so you know anyway that's my point about the life of julia and, and all that is, and, is that you start looking to the state to provide you these enchantment creeds and this sense of belonging because you can't find it close to home in your community and and, and rest and yeah so I, so i guess for 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 listeners i mean the takeaway is like those ideas don't have to be at cross purposes they're they're right. mutu- they're if they stay in their spots where they should be, they're kind of they're mutually enriching and mutually sustaining. And um, hopefully, we get there. It's kind of fun to range from Patrick Pierce to Thanksgiving dinner. Yeah, no, in, uh, well, in but that's, that's, the, that's the point of this thing. And um, and we'll have to get to some James Burnham geeking out the next time I have you on. But um, we should close it out. I mean, but th- this is sort of the sort of part of my core point about all the Schumpeter stuff is that capitalism depends on values it cannot create and cannot restore once lost. And if you don't raise people, if you don't civilize the barbarians that babies are when they come into this world, yeah. inside the civilization of the family and then the extended community, um, they aren't going to lose their desire for a sense of belonging, that sort of desire to be part of something. They're just going to look in the wrong places for it. And one of the places they're going to look is politics. And uh, you know, this is one of the points that Yuval, makes, Yuval Levin makes very well in Fractured Republic about how if you read Obama's second inaugural – he talks it, you know, he, he, there are only two political units. It's the federal government and the individual. Yeah. And, um, and so anything you can't do for yourself, anything that Julia can't do for herself, it's not her parents or friends or church or whatever. It's the state. That's it. And that if, – if you actually try to impose that worldview, you're going to destroy this country. That would be suicidal, right? And that's yeah. sort of the argument I'm trying to make. Um, I want to thank you, Michael, for coming on here. I apologize to some – oh, I want to ask you one quick question. So right before this thing started, I got an email from somebody. The title was just simply Suicide of the West. And the first sentences all begin with a capitalized WE, W-E, both in the hall caps. Oh, and it says, we see your loxism 
and faux supremacy. We will bring traitors like you to trial eventually. We are a republic, not a democracy. Now, the only question I have is because you maybe know some of that world. Which, which one of my friends said that? Well, <laughs> no, is, is loxism like a thing? No, I've never heard that before. That seems to be I mean, I a like unique it. coinage. Yeah. Um, that's why you listen to the remnant to get new great anti-Semitic neologisms, I guess. But um, Marxism. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, uh, I want to thank Michael for coming on here. Uh, we will do more intellectual history geeking out another time. I got no ads for you other than please. First of all, I'm super grateful to everybody who's bought the book. If you could buy it from a real bookstore, that would be awesome because of the way if it gets complicated. If you get too many sales on Amazon, the New York Times punishes you for it. But whatever, I don't really care. Just buy the book, please. If you can, I am grateful for it. Um, it's I recorded the Audible version. took a lot of work to do. And um, I'm going to try to do another podcast this week, but I don't know if I can. Uh, if you go to jonahgoldberg.com, you can see all of the crazy media stuff that I've done. I had a great hearing on The Daily Show, which kind of stunned me. A great hit on uh, Morning Joe, which also I'm grateful, but it also kind of surprised me how great it was. And uh, um, Yuval Levin's review of the book is coming out soon in the magazine. And um, we'll have all the weird things that we referenced here as best we can. We will um, put up in the show notes, including some of your Irish nationalist stuff. stuff yeah. And um, thanks again for listening. S- reviews, yada, 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 Stitcher, Google Play, blah, 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 blah. Tune in next week. Thank you. Thank you.